How does climate change affect health? And what can medical professionals do about it? These are the very questions we hope to answer here on Code Green, the climate smart health professional. I'm Maddie Tapman, your host for today's episode. Today, we're excited to bring you a special Earth Day episode in collaboration with Eco America's Let's Talk Climate series. This was previously recorded and is hosted by Climate for Health Director Rebecca Rear with guests Dr. Cheryl Holder and Dean Boris Lozniak. They reflect on lessons from 2020 and how we as health professionals can build more equitable climate solutions for 2021. You can check out our episode notes for a link to the full recording. Here's the interview. I'm Rebecca Rear, Director of the Climate for Health program at EcoAmerica. And while we're all tuning in virtually, I'm hosting from Washington, DC, the ancestral home of the Anacostan people. On today's Let's Talk Climate episode, we'll cover Hindsight is 2020, our climate and health goals for 2021 with our fabulous guests, Dr. Cheryl Holder, co-founder, or sorry, excuse me, co-chair of Florida Clinicians for Climate Actions. Uh, hi, Dr. Holder. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. And Dr. Boris Lushniak, Dean of the University of Maryland School of Public Health and retired U.S. Public Health Service Rear Admiral. Hi, Dean Lushniak. Hey, Rebecca, how are you? Glad to be here as well. Great, great. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, and so, so in his inauguration address, President Biden did talk about climate change. Uh, it was in the context of the other big issues his administration wants to take on, COVID-19, racism and white supremacy, and an attack on truth and democracy. Uh, so sort of wanted to dig in a little bit and what's your take on this multi-solving approach? You know, let's take on everything at once. Let's have these solutions that multi-solve. Um, and what do you want to see as the first step towards implementation? Um, Dean Lushniak, why, why don't you pick it up? Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot to deal with right now. And, you know, part of this is an approach that we've seen, right? I'm a dean of a school of public health. And what we've been teaching and telling our students, our faculty and staff, our whole College Park, Maryland community, is that there's not just one aspect to the complexity of even this past year. You know, if we sort of just look at it from the perspective of saying, okay, we're in the midst of a pandemic, but I have to remind everybody, right now we're going through the first anniversary of multiple things. The first person with COVID in the United States, right? The first death in the United States. Globally, things happened several weeks ago, right? But we're only one year into this. But also we have to look at the other complexities, right? We, we went to use starting utilize a term in public health and many other groups are using that term is we're not, we just don't have just a pandemic. We have a syndemic going on. And the syndemic includes what? It includes the COVID-19 pandemic. It includes climate change, which was an issue before, but certainly needs to be regarded as a high priority issue. We have the realization more so after the murder of George, George Floyd of, of racism in our country, of health inequities, inequities in general. And so I think the approach that, that the president laid out yesterday is that we have to deal with this endemic. Now, now, the reality is that there's multiple components to it. That's true. What I'm also thrilled with is that this isn't just a blanket way of dealing with it. Embedded in the administration planning is to dig deeper into COVID as an issue, 
to dig deeper into racism as, as an issue, to deal with environmental issues, climate change as an issue. So it's not just sort of saying we're spreading the umbrella here, right? And we're gonna do a little bit everywhere. These are deep dives that are being planned. So I'm really enthusiastic about that approach. Yeah, I pick up from there. I agree that this can be done simultaneously because foundationally there's many similarities. I mean, these things just didn't happen overnight and the pandemic just didn't happen and just didn't happen to kill poor people and black and brown people more. So it's a separate issue. So underlying the basic pandemic, the basic climate change are some policies and our foundation of how we function as a country. And so if we address these big issues, we will then eventually tackle the climate and we will definitely tackle racism because it forces us to accept some basic truths about what our system is doing. And whether that is the negative side of the capitalist system or not having proper healthcare or not having proper jobs and having policies that discriminate against certain people. So we can tackle all these things simultaneously. You know, Cheryl, that's a, that's a great point. And, and, and to sort of to this question, Rebecca, is the sense is that there's also a major shift going on that is a little bit of this umbrella change, an umbrella sort of overall coverage. And that really is the attitude change towards data, towards science, towards facts, right? So embedded in all this is not only saying that we're going to deal with all these different facets, and as I mentioned, doing a deep dive in all this, but it's really going to be a change of approach, right? So if we're talking about racism, let's deal with the facts, not made up things, right? Not stuff that is just out there saying, well, this is my gut feeling. No, it's based upon real data. It's based upon information. It's based upon how our communities are suffering now. If we're talking about COVID, let's talk about the idea that there are ways of dealing with this that are not politically bent but in essence are an approach against an infectious pande disease pandemic. If we talk about climate change, that it's no longer a matter of saying, well, there's you know, inaccurate science out there. Let's look at data. And I think that's a major game changer that showed through yesterday and even beforehand. Uh, you know, uh, if you kind of think about this, right? The Office of Science Technology Policy, right? This has always been embedded within the White House. The decision is this is going to be a cabinet level position. Science is at the table yet again. And I think that really is a major reason for us to be enthusiastic about all this. Yeah, I think that's, and that's, I was going to ask you about that. Um, having OSTP brought up to a cabinet level position, I think does fe it feels monumental and it feels like a particular um, commentary on the way that science has been treated uh, for the past couple of years and that it is important to under you know have have science under be the important framework and groundwork for for policy making um, which i think is something that uh, you know the, the public health profession has been talking about for a long time um, which is why uh, having more visible public health voices on these issues particularly around racism as a public health crisis uh, you know climate change as a public health emergency, I think is critical. And to take that to another, you know, sort of level, which is a global perspective, right? We're not even talking about the national sense of justice here. We're talking global justice, right? Which is in essence is we have the same issue of, we know where the factories are and the highways are put on this globe. And it is directly related with what? With 
the richness, right? Are you, you know, a richer nation or a poorer nation, right? And much like we have inequities within our own community, right? Within the state of Maryland, within our nation, we have inequities obviously within the globe. And this issue of justice now has to drive decisions about air quality, has to drive decisions about energy access across the whole world. And, and there are you know, major, major obstacles ahead of us on this. But one where, what, once again, the unifying feature is, guess what? No matter where you live on this globe or what neighborhood you live in here in Maryland, we are still part of a global population. And, and the bigger effects ultimately are, are going to affect us equally. Ultimately, we're all going to be suffering unless we jo join in together. And I think the question too also gets at justice as an organizing principle, right? And thinking about, you know, uh, sort of bringing, I know we have, we have our Blessed Tomorrow program, you know, Eco America works across sectors and really, um, you know, the, the faith leaders bring this true moral imperative uh, to, to acting on climate now, you know, it really brings in a sense of urgency. And when we can, un and then paired with that health understanding of, of climate change is impacting our health now, it's not something that's that's happening in the far off future, and the solutions are also here now. Uh, you know, Gina McCarthy, who's a new member of the administration, um, was the first person I heard talking about her grandkids instead of polar bears when it came mm -hmm. to climate change. Um, and so I think uh, justice too, as an, as an as that organizing principle, is going to. I think we're going to see that make a big difference. Um, you know, honestly, if you look at the environmental justice movement, it's been around for a long time. And the fruits of its labor hasn't been there yet. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an important organizing principle and it should be there because this is not, again, none of this is new. We've had smokestacks, black folks from, I know in, in where I am in South Florida, the Jim Crow laws put blacks on one part of the railroad tracks and that was just by law. So then that community ended up with the highways and the dumping and everything. So environmental justice has always been a big organizing principle in many of our communities. So I think it's important and it has to be there, but we're going to have to also accept that some of the past, and I hope the past doesn't predict what happened now, that it has been an organizing principle for a long time, but we didn't see the outcomes. So I, it has to be part of what we do but we have to take it to another level too. Beyond justice, we are gonna to have to look at the economic factors and we're gonna to have to accept people where they are and what they're saying and what the communities are saying. Mm -hmm. So we can really move this needle more. Right, and you know, the, the implications of environmental justice, of social justice, of us looking at this as a health issue, right? We really have to strive again to put it out there front and center. This isn't just an optional thing out there, right? Because the direct relationship with our health, right? With, with you know, what, what I like to advocate for is the one health approach, right? The connectivity of what is human health plus animal health, right? The, the wildlife health plus planetary health, the ecological environmental health is critical. That triangulation is what allows us to live as a society. I also want uh, you know everyone to reflect on again. This is something I push all the time with with you know perhaps my, the students at the University of Maryland and the faculty staff have heard it too much, but I believe they've not heard it enough. Which is let's remind ourselves of the definition of health, 
and I'm a strong believer in, in the World Health Organization definition, which is health is complete. It's complete. So it's aspirational. That's what we're shooting for. It's complete. And complete what? Complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Right? When you bundle that together, you realize the social well-being includes the movements regarding environmental justice, regarding climate change, regarding the world around us. So this really is, I mean, you know, these are not optional things that you can say, oh, I'm involved in this. No, this is life and death for the planet and life and death for us as, as a humanity. Yeah, I agree. I think that is the key organizing principle. It's about health and not health as form of disease. I mean, we talk about the diseases that are related with the climate and what we're seeing, but it's even bigger than that. It is the health, as Professor Vosnik said it beautifully, and that is what we have to do worldwide because that is what we are as humans, as our planet, we, that's our right. That's a right of the animals and the plants and the trees and, and humans and the insects to be able to survive in this world with good health. And that, and with that comes justice, because if you are truly committed to the health of everyone, there's no way you're going to approve these policies and err on the side of extracting everything to make a few people wealthy at the expense of others. And so we will move forward in that, and that is justice, but it is overall achieving that health. Yeah, and we actually had an audience question uh, from Megan that says, what can individual people do to ensure that justice and health justice are included in decision-making at the local level? And maybe in parks planning and planning for greening, climate action plans. So what can people do at that local level? Well, for the main thing is, again, data drives a lot of this. So you've got to know what is happening in your communities. And the simplest ways, uh, we know where's the number one driver of what's happening on our planet, transportation issues. So if you're going to try and tackle things, look at our transportation. Um, electric vehicles, whether it's school buses, whether it's your personal decision, whether it's energy efficiency, because we know energy efficiency also can save a lot. So it comes down to educating yourself on what are the key areas in your community because any climate solution is a health solution. So we definitely look at in the local area, what is going on, getting involved, getting that data. So then that drives your decision-making and what's the best way. If not, there are always books and things that you can do, but locally and the big issues are energy efficiency, transportation, and you will really start making a big impact there. And of course, farmers supporting independent, the small women farmers in the world will do a lot for improving climate. And total agreement with that, that approach. I mean, you know, first of all, let's, let's be honest, as we're talking to the listeners and viewers out there here today, is things do really change at the local level, right? They, they, those changes need to be occurring there. To sort of say we can change it at the global level immediately, yeah, well, that's again, aspirational. We can certainly work on multiple fronts, but let's look at our own communities. The big game changer, right? Four years ago, around this very time, right? We had two marches here in Washington, DC, both of which I had the honor to participate in, right? We had the Women's March right after the inauguration, right, which was a, a, a sense of unity, but also outrage. And then a few weeks after that was the March for Science. 
the reality is at that local level is that we now have shifted yet again, where science is no longer thought of as an enemy. Uh, let's be honest, for four years, science was deemed, uh, you're not really at the table. And data, data was treated as a four-letter word, which, by the way, it is, but you know what I mean. You know, four years ago, we were out there, you know, cheering on with a bunch of unruly scientists. And, and, and part of the cheers that we were chanting as we were marching through the streets of Washington were what? Right? What do we want? We want evidence-based science. When do we want it? We want it after peer review. So the reality is that we understand science is not 100% perfect, but we need to take that to a new level of perfection. Let's get as much data as possible. Let's believe in that data and let's use that data, uh, you know, as, as, you know, as we've just recently discussed at the local level, right? Let's bring it to the people there and say, listen, this is where we're at and this is where we're heading and this is what we need to do to stop us heading in the wrong direction. And I think um, that we actually just had a good question that says, so how do we, this is all very positive and exciting, but how do you approach the naysayers? How do you have this same discussion with folks who still maybe aren't, you know, as uh, you know, don't have the background on the science or don't recognize or perhaps have uh, deep insecurities about recognizing the injustices? How, how have you been approaching those conversations? Well, I'll, as a doctor, I have used the physician approach because there are just some things that are facts. And I no longer get into discussion on whether climate change is real or not. I say, when I check your pulse, I come up with a number and that's just what it is. So at this point, I understand that you're having difficulty accepting these facts. So how can I help you? What can I help you to do to help you understand that these are facts? Because I, to debate it, in terms that you have any validity in your argument is false. And I don't wanna do that because that hurts you and it hurts me and it hurts our community. But if you want me to help you figure out where we can get some information to help you work it out and see why we're telling you as facts, I can do that. And then I can also say, you're also a scientist. I mean, we're all, I call my, everybody, my patients, you guys are all citizen scientists. And let's face it, when you go out in a concrete area and the heat comes up at you, how do you feel? And when you go into a cooler area with lots of trees around, how do you feel? Think about the whole world having a whole bunch more concrete and it's going up there. What do you think happens? Now, what's also putting that blanket over? All that stuff that goes up in the sky. So um, I think you can figure out what we're talking about. And these are facts, so I'm gonna help you. But I don't think we should debate any longer whether this is real or not. I think we have to truly move the discussion to help people to come to terms with facts because it is hard. It's like when I have some terrible health news, it isn't easy. When I have to tell you you have diabetes or high blood pressure, it's not easy, but I'm here to help you understand it and help you care for it and help you try and prevent further bad outcomes. So that's the approach I now use. It's no longer a debate. Breaking it down like that and that analogy, I think makes will make sense to a lot of people, and it um, really is reflected too in our um, let's talk climate, uh, let's talk health and climate guidance that we have, which is stay above the fray, you know, ditch the doom and gloom, right? Like pivot to solutions very quickly. Um, and I want to switch gears a little bit um, and ask about how you're thinking about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout um, in terms of 
public health infrastructure and capacity? And sort of what are what are the implications um, about our public health infrastructure and capacity to address um, the climate health emergency? Uh, Dean Luciak, why don't you why don't you go first? Well, you know. Uh... The rollout of the vaccination program, uh, where we had, you know, as a society, I think, had a lot of belief that we were going to be better than we were, right? Let's be honest, this past year has been a year where, from for a variety of reasons, we all know those reasons, it started at the leadership level, at, at the national level, it went from there to a philosophy of lack of a national approach, let's live, give it to the state and locals to do without giving necessarily much support to them, saying it's, you know, we passed the buck in, in essence. Uh, and this began from the earliest days of everything from, you know, diagnostics, right? Trying to get the COVID testing done to the idea of contact tracing, to the idea of, of getting information out, to the idea of implementing public health recommended measures to now a vaccine program that has had a rough start. Once again, I have faith that it's going to get better. Yes, we have a supply and demand issue, <clears throat> but at the same time, we now hopefully will have some sense of national direction of how this vaccine program is supposed to be going, and I believe it will get better. That being said, this whole year, not just this vaccine rollout, but the whole year has shown us the problems that we do have in our society in general regarding public health infrastructure and its capacity. I, I'm a physician, right? I'm a public health person. Uh, and, you know, when you look at all the information, you know, we were talking, you know, earlier, Dr. Holder mentioned this whole idea of, you know, that we give diagnoses, right? We look and say, here's your blood pressure. Well, all the data has pointed out to the fact that public health has not been supported, right? especially at the state, at state and local level, right? There's, there are fewer people working in public health over the years. There's less money being put into the resources. And I think what we have to learn from this whole COVID year in general, and, and also from this new component of the vaccine rollout, is that we have to figure out a way, right? To support that public health infrastructure and capacity, right? When we talk about, you know, that, Right now, what do we spend on healthcare in this country, right? It, it's $3.4 trillion. Uh, and that's not really health care per se, that's sick care, right? We know that it's being put towards the idea of things that potentially are preventable. But only roughly 3% of all those dollars are actually spent in public health and preventive measures, right? So we have, uh, we have a way to go. Now, why is this important for implications for climate impacts? Well, we know that there are health impacts from climate change, right? The idea of extreme heat, the idea of outdoor air quality, flooding, what weather changes, vector-borne diseases, right? The idea of insects living in what they didn't, where they didn't live before, water-related infections, food-related infections, and mental health and well-being, right? All those are health impacts of climate change. And I dare say, if we've learned one lesson in this year, we have to support public health, the infrastructure and capacity to deal with not only COVID, but all the health issues that I mentioned. If we get better at this, if we learn our lesson, then we at least are setting ourselves up for, you know, addressing the climate, climate impacts to our health at a higher level than we did before. You know, my father used to say, good old Ukrainian immigrant to this country, right, post-World War II used to say is, you know, 
there's nothing bad from which something good doesn't come from, right? He said this in Ukrainian, right? And from that term is my hope is from the bad, everything bad about COVID that we in fact get better. Yeah, um, ditto. I mean, what we've seen this year is that uh, we have no public health infrastructure. I'm in Florida and public health has been defunded over the last 12 plus years, totally defunded. And so when we need public health infrastructure, it's not there. So the rollout of the vaccine has again exposed inequities that we have in our system. And I often see the public health system, much like I see my poor patients and my poor communities. If you don't invest in these communities and support these communities, you have what we see now, a lot of death and dying that could have been prevented with a real good respect of the science, respect of the data, having an infrastructure that had been funded and supported for many, many years because Coronavirus is just one thing. We know what heat is bringing. We know what disasters. And in Florida, we are going to be experiencing it every year with an infrastructure that's not there. So it has amplified and exposed all the inequities in our country. And I hope, like you say, it's a learning opportunity that we can build from there. The COVID vaccine rollout has just been just shockingly bad again because we knew we've been hearing about it. Black folks are dying at three times the rate. Hispanics are dying at three times the rate. They're living multi-generation homes. They don't have access to resources, da, da, da. Where do you roll out the vaccines? You put it in richer communities. They threw it at the hospitals. Then they said, the only way you can enroll is through a website. The digital divide is real. Resources are real. Black folks didn't even make it to 65 on a general in Florida. Our rates are much lower, but the people who are infected are younger than 65. So all the inequities that we talked about, they used the same structure and rolled out a vaccine. Why are we surprised that it failed? But we failed this for centuries because we continue to ignore the basic information that we have in some of the basic sciences. But this is, we do need to have some intentional leaders. And I think I hear it. And the climate team that um, President Biden has put together does reflect much more in understanding what needs to be done, but we definitely have to get to the state level and have some changes in our state, at least in Florida, to have the response that's going to protect people and rebuild our infrastructure in public health. Yeah, and I think I heard it put uh, very succinctly by uh, Dr. Lena Wen, who said public health is we, you know, we're invisible because when we win, nothing happens. Like we, exactly. win, we prevented something from happening. Yep. And so that's why we're first on the chopping block for every budget revision because, you know, well, nothing happened to public health this year. So we don't have to put as much money to that. It's like, no, that's exactly the point. Nothing happened. We protected everybody. Um, and so I just thought that was a really important insight. And the other thing about public health is the flip side of that is something terrible has to happen for you to make a law or for you, you know, for you to change the budget. Um, you know, it's how seatbelts and helmets and all that were put into place because people kept having horrific accidents. Um, yeah. yeah. And so right. And, and in general, what have we been, you know, we've lived in a society that's very sort of the knee jerk reaction, right? We like to 
you know, to, first of all, we don't prepare ourselves adequately for the next oncoming crisis. We then go through a crisis. We then say, oh my God, look, we're in the crisis. We start putting blame on various areas. We throw money at the crisis to try to make it go away. And then that money, that support lasts for a year or two or three until what? Until somehow magically policymakers, decision makers, legislators forget, right? And they forget what went through. And all we go through then is the next iteration of all this, right? Let's learn our lesson, right? Let's learn our lesson and realize that, that you know, we, we are better as a, as a people, better as a planet if we're preparing ourselves. Multifaceted preparation, right? If with that public health infrastructure where we're taking care of the health of the people, right? With the idea that we can shift into crisis mode where necessary, but there's always work to be done. There's always a crisis going on in public health. And, and you're absolutely right, right? The, the word had been right from a preventive medicine aspect, right? When prevention works, nothing happens, right? And it's a double entendre, much like Dr. Wen had, had spoken, right? We just don't celebrate the idea of how good we are when things work because nobody seems to notice. But it gets back to that $3.4 trillion. And that's the hard part that we're gonna to have to come to terms with, that those dollars will have to be redirected if we're going to get good health. And climate is making it near impossible for us now to deny it. Whether we get the old fashioned public health, I say we have to reimagine public health because we don't have a lot of time to put back the old fashioned structure. So at this point, we're going to need everybody to be able to avert some of the crisis that we're going to, at least in Florida, because we have the heat, we have the vector-borne diseases, we have the, the storms, we have the water, the sea level rise, and we already see the for-profit insurance companies are beginning to leave. And so the costs are piling up. So it's no longer the luxury of waiting. So. For some states, there's really no time. For other states, they may be able to hide, but we have to look at it globally and understand that public health must come back in whichever way we imagine it to be and implement it because we have to save lives. So let's jump into the how a little bit because uh, Lisa from Texas uh, asks, how do we organize and establish a common mindset and infrastructure? to address the climate change health emergency. So Dr. Hoare, pick it up. Well, for me, I'm looking at, since everything is local, I believe in that, there's so many local organizations. Like I'm part of the Florida Clinicians for Climate Action and there's Climate um, for Moms, there's Climate Central, there are lots of groups that are now forming and most big um, cities have a resiliency person. So it is now for us to get involved at a local level in whichever organization you can find. Even if you don't participate, they do need the dollars because there are enough local people now that if you find these organizations, you can support them. And then look at your policies. In particular, children must, we must move early on children because they're lowest to the ground. They're getting most of the pollutions. The heat affects them more and where I am. So anything that works on getting policymakers aware of what's happening to our children and pregnant women, because that's our next generation. So there, we're at the, unfortunately, we're at a time where we have so much groundswell because it's happening such such rapidity that there are many organizations you can get at. And then look at your politicians, how they vote. 
And so ask those questions. When you go out, if you're not in any group, ask those questions. How do they feel about energy efficiency? How do they feel about funding solar energy? How do they feel about renewables? How do they feel about understanding that we can't eat meats and how we're gonna change how we do as much? We can eat some meat, but we're gonna have to cut back. And how are they willing to look at the entire global perspective? And things like Paris Agreement is essential, but it is voluntary. So how are we going to get these policies in place? And you start asking those questions, your politicians and voting, you will move this needle and getting involved with some of these small organizations. Yeah, you know, and I think part of that approach is, and I love Lisa from Texas, uh, how, how you worded the question, right? Because, you know, we need to be able to bundle this. And, you know, we, we may be, you know, on this presentation today have a bias, right? We, we tend to have sort of this connectivity of not just climate change as an entity. Climate change as an entity is important enough. Well, how do you bundle this? And what way we've been bundling, and most of our discussion has dealt with the idea of its ramifications on our health, right? We are to some extent still a selfish people, right? Well, if it affects me, then I'll listen. If it affects the planet, well, who the hell cares, right? You know, so the reality is that, you know, Lisa, I think the, in terms of organizing and establishing a common mindset, we have to be able to marry the concept of climate change and direct health effects of that individual, of that individual's family, of that community. And then you build it up from there saying that that's how, that's the hook that we have to be utilizing and use, utilizing it from a better, more effectively in terms of communication techniques, with data, with science, with information, but it's got to be, it's got to be personal, right? It's got to be at that level. We've got a couple of questions too from folks. I'm trying to group a couple of questions together and it's, um, what's different about today? I mean, of course, like literally today, we're feeling very different than maybe a day or two days ago, but there, uh, you know, we talked about earlier that, in, you know, environmental injustice has actually been around for decades. You know, it's, I think people have had a recent awakening to it, but it's been around, you know, Dr. King marched with sanitation workers in 1968 uh, to, you know, recognize the disproportionate impact, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, communities of color and low-income communities. But, um, and, and uh, you know, there have been syndemics before. We might not have had the term syndemic, but when there have been past global pandemics, it's been on layers of inequality. What is different about today and how, you know, what does that mean for the way we're thinking about solutions? Well, let, let me start with that. You know, I, I've always said, and again, this is sort of a common thing out of my mouth at the School of Public Health in College Park, Maryland, is that first of all, to be a public health person, whether that's a professional, whether that's a student, one, is you have to come in with an optimism already, right? There's too many challenges in public health that if one's character is one is one filled with pessimism, you will wash out in this career path. I think you're absolutely right. The skeptic will say is we've been here before and we've never gotten better, right? 1968, Martin Luther King marches, right? Uh, the world has had syndemics, right? So the skeptic will say it's not any different. The optimist, and we need to remain optimistic is okay, now I believe that this time, this time we're at a point in time, right? We've never been in 2021 under these circumstances with all the knowledge base. And yes, right after a major pandemic, let's be optimistic that this will advance, that we will learn some lessons from this. And again, I'm not naive enough to say, oh, this is all going to be easy and perfect. 
it's a mindset. And if we really kind of work off each other on this mindset, support each other in this mindset, that's what's different is we take history and we try to alter the future from what we've learned in that history. Yeah, and I think not just taking history, but we have also been able to see it. I think media and social media and ready access to information has made a tremendous difference. I don't know how you could live in the United States and not see how many storms hit Louisiana yesterday and not have a thought, or see when the polar vortex comes down and you're minus something, or when the storms go from category two to category five in 10 hours and not start thinking. And you're able to see it. You're able to see the destruction that happened in Abaco in 2019 in the Bahamas. That's incredible destruction. So it's a little bit harder with our current infrastructure of media and knowledge that just comes at you to really hide. You kind of have to really want to not believe, sort of like how some of our political people chose not to believe facts. And that's a deliberate intentional disregard. But if you don't have that kind of mindset, it is hard not to see it and understand it. I think back to when printing press came around and the Bible came up, think of the power that having that written word when Martin Luther and his reformation and spread the information all over, think of what happened to our world. So I see it much in the same way now in our world with this access to media. And that has changed the young, has changed the older, and I think what happened in Georgia with the organizing and the education of our community, because I think the millennials are probably one of the most educated group in the US. And when I look in China, they have the largest educated population that they've ever had in the history of the Chinese people. And you take that across the world. So we have a lot of educated people who are now ready to say, we're gonna make this change. So that's what brings me hope in what we've seen in the last 50 years with people. And speaking of education, you're both affiliated with universities. Uh, so what is your advice to students who want a career uh, in health and climate? First of all, you know, uh, the door is open. So for students who are looking towards this career path, it, it's actually no longer in one area anymore. Right. The beauty of uh, us having a School of Public Health in College Park is that my natural allies there are different than the traditional allies. Right. Lots of schools of public health are immediately allied with medical. Right. Whether it's nursing or medical school or right. We have the University of Maryland, Baltimore, and it's 30 miles away and they're allies of us. But who exists on that campus? Right. It includes the School of Public Policy. Well, public policy is, in fact, an important facet of career paths for students. Right. Yes, we have activities at the School of Public Health, but also uh, at, at the School of Architecture and, and, and Planning, right? The whole idea is how do you build livable communities that are thing? Well, and then you have the School of Engineering. Those are but examples of how we in public health have to now embrace multiple new allies and friends, turn them into friends. And so to the students out there is think big. Right? It's no longer saying, well, I should get a public health degree. I'm a public health guy. I want you to get a public health degree. But if your passion lies elsewhere, you can still take a career path that takes you into a path that changes the world. How cool is that, students of the world? Yeah, it is the perfect time. And if you're just want to look out for yourself, there's so little research in what we do in the health arena. So this is, if you want to get into infancy, this is it. 
But just like we just heard, it is the intersection of everything. You must interact and have an interprofessional approach if you're going to make the difference. And you also have that time constraint which then pushes you and that passion and that adrenaline goes, because I know docs, we tend to work up to the last minute, study that extra to get that A. This is the career field that puts you in that field 100%, because we are looking at about a good 50 year to make that change. And right now, there's, this is a field that would impact the entire world. So if you're saying we went into medicine to save the world, which so many of us say we want to save the world, this is it. So, you know, we welcome you. Come save the world with us. We just want to have one final uh, lightning round question to wrap us up and send us on our way. So 30 second answers. There's a heck of a lot going on right now. Um, so what is keeping you focused on climate and health action and advocacy? For me, it's my patients, it's my community, because there's some of us who are going to feel it more earlier and we're already feeling it now. There are vulnerable folks, that's my patient, my homeless patient, my uninsured patient, my black and brown, my children. And they keep me focused because they remind me, as I say, they're my canary in my coal mine. They remind me that this is happening now and we gotta get everybody else involved because what's good for them will also save the rest of us. So we're all in this together. So that's what keeps me focused. And what keeps me focused is for the last four years, I've been blessed to be the Dean of a School of Public Health and part of a team that is doing what? Our responsibility is to make sure we create the next generation of public health leaders, right? Uh, because this is not going to be solved by my generation. It certainly wasn't solved by the previous generation. And to some extent, it's going to be multi-generational in our approach. And so keep me focused is, boy, I'm going to at some point have this incredible cadre of students out there who are focused on advocacy, who are focused on changing the world, who are doing it with passion and belief and strength, and who are strong in their approaches. So that, that's what keeps me focused. Thank you both so much uh, for joining us as our guests. We are grateful for the words that you shared and the work that you do. And from all of us at Eco America and Climate for Health, thank you. Please join me in caring for our climate in order to care for our health. Stay well, stay safe. Thanks so much. Today's podcast is produced by me, Maddie Tapman. Thank you so much to Eco America for giving us access to this incredible interview. This episode was sound edited by Leanna Hagis, and we have Julia Rothschild on Twitter and me on Instagram. Our other producers include Sarah Shu and Natasha Sood, and Andrea Grossman is our other sound editor. We also want to acknowledge the indigenous lands that we're recording from. I'm recording from Providence, Rhode Island, which sits on the traditional homelands of the Narragansett tribe. And lastly, we want to hear from you. Just send us an email at codegreenclimatepod at gmail.com or DM us on social media. Our Instagram is at codegreenclimatepod and our Twitter at codegreenpod. Let us know if you have any ideas for future episodes. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this show. Thank you again for tuning in to Code Green, the climate smart health professional. We'll see you next time.